And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has incredible podcasts like the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. The podcast is hosted by Jeff Brunsbach and Jay Nathan. Now, Gain, Grow, and Retain is built to inspire SaaS and technology leaders who are facing the day-to-day challenges of scaling. Hosts Jeff and Jay share conversations about growing and scaling subscription businesses with a customer-first approach. If any of these topics sound interesting to you, you're gonna like the podcast. Creating more brand advocates, SaaS as a predominant model for business, customer success at scale, or the challenges of integrating new tools with CSM. Some of these topics pique your interest. You're going to love the podcast. You're going to love Gain, Grow, Retain. Go check it out wherever you get your podcast. Remember, Gain, Grow, Retain on the HubSpot Podcast Network. Today, my guest is Sharish Nadkarni. He is the author of From Startup to Exit. Sharish is a serial entrepreneur. He has had an incredible career. I'm going to read through some of the things that he's done Uh, Some of them you definitely know. So he's a pioneer in email technology and online education. He has developed consumer technologies that have been used by tens of millions of users worldwide. He successfully founded three companies and achieved exits with two publicly held companies. These are some of the accomplishments. He co-founded Live Mocha, the world's largest language learning site with over 15 million registered members. Live Mocha was selected as Time Magazine's top 50 sites in 2010 and won the prestigious English-speaking Union Award presented by Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Live Mocha was acquired by Rosetta Stone. He is the founder of Team on Systems, an innovative developer of wireless email technologies. He successfully negotiated acquisition by Research in Motion, RIM, BlackBerry. The Timon technology was the foundation of the BlackBerry internet email, which serviced over 50 million mobile users. Uh, he contributed to RIM's early growth in the wireless device market through partnerships with T-Mobile. He launched RIM's first smartphone device, the BlackBerry 7100, with a phone form factor. He established MSN as an industry-leading web portal, He was responsible for Microsoft's entry into two of the largest application categories in the internet, email and search, successfully negotiated acquisition of Hotmail and partnership with Inktomi Corporation. Uh, He reestablished Microsoft as an undisputed market share leader in Windows development tools, and he was responsible for Microsoft's early entry and leadership 
in PC-based email marketing. He has been working in tech for a long time, to say the least. So we spoke about his career. Candidly, we spoke about all the things that he's done, and then I tried to pull out some lessons from them. So some of the actual lessons that we went into, how to research so that you can establish proper product market fit, how to properly plan your company, plan your steps and your milestones in your company as a founder. So when you do get offers, you understand what you want to do, how you want to be acquired. Uh, we spoke about differences and similarities, lessons learned as he transitioned between different companies. Uh, we spoke about raising funds. We spoke about finding investors, proper fit investors. Uh, we spoke about how to select a VC as a partner. We spoke about how to structure agreements with venture capitals. Uh, we spoke about culture. We spoke about target market. We spoke about uh, challenges in entrepreneurship. Uh, an absolutely incredible conversation. If you are an entrepreneur or if you are a techie or if you just love uh, listening to somebody that has worked through so many different industries as the internet has matured. This is an incredible podcast for you. So let's jump right into it. This is Sharish Nadkarni. He is a serial entrepreneur, but uh, more recently, the author of From Startup to Exit. All right, great. Uh, first of all, Scott, great to be here uh, with you. Thanks for having, having me on your show. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about uh, my story. Um, I'm based here in Seattle, Washington, uh, but um, I came to the United States in my late teens and uh, did my undergraduate education here in the uh, United States. Um, and then uh, after getting my uh, uh, MBA from Harvard Business School, I joined uh, Microsoft. Uh, this was in, in 1987. Uh, right after they had gone IPO. So this was in very early days of Microsoft. They had probably about 1,000 employees. And uh, I was 26 years old. Um, and I was given the responsibility for launching uh, Microsoft's uh, software in the email category. Uh, email today is uh, you know pretty widespread. Um, and every, everybody uses email. But at that time, uh, in, in 1987, uh, only very large companies uh, used email, and they use it on, um, you know, mainframe systems. Uh, hardly anyone had a PC-based um, email solution. So, I was very fortunate to have uh, launched the whole category of email, um, you know, on the PC and the uh, Apple Macintosh uh, back in 1987. Um, and then. Um, uh, I'll talk a little bit more about my history at Microsoft, but uh, I also got to do the uh, uh, Hotmail acquisition at Microsoft, uh, which was a you know a pretty large acquisition at that time, about four hundred million dollars, and um, you know that became MSN uh, Hotmail and grew to over three hundred million users around the world. So that's a little bit about my history, uh, early days, uh, and then I uh, uh, became a tech entrepreneur. I've started three companies and uh, had uh, successful exits for two of those. Uh, companies. And that's what prompted me to write my book. So we'll talk about some of the lessons um, that you've learned over your career, which I'm pretty sure has formed the basis for what you write about. Now, even walk me through, like walk me through as you left, as you left working for somebody. And, you know, when I was looking at 
I was looking at, you know, your your resume and your your history. You've worked with some of the biggest names. You, like these are these are iconic brands that you've worked with, including, if I'm not mistaken, um, the first company you founded, uh, mm -hmm. Team On, yeah. that was acquired by BlackBerry. Yes. So you've worked with like all all you've worked with the biggest names in tech. So, um, at what point in your career did you pivot and start? your first company leaving was it after the microsoft uh or was there other things that you did in between uh no this was after uh i had done about a 12 year stint at uh, microsoft so i had amazing experience at at microsoft uh, i always wanted to be a, a tech entrepreneur uh, but in the early days um, of the pc industry it was hard to be a an entrepreneur because you had to not only produce software, you had to package it into uh, you know five and a half inch floppies and create a a box and then find a find retail distribution like Egghead. You may remember Egghead uh, in those days. Uh, so it was not really easy to um, find customers for your uh, for your software. Uh, but uh, you know by the late nineties, uh, uh, the internet was in full swing. Uh, and you could actually develop applications uh, in the cloud that could be distributed straight to your customers. So it was a lot easier to get started. Um, and uh, I had great experience at uh, Microsoft, you know, working on MSN and launching Hotmail, you know, once we had acquired it. Uh, and so I, I felt that there was a big opportunity to create uh, an email solution, which was business or enterprise grade. Uh, and you know, provide it to the cloud as opposed to installing servers in your in your uh, company. And so that was the uh, genesis of my first company, Tmod Systems, which was a business grade or enterprise grade uh, email and calendaring uh, solution that could be deployed by companies, uh, you know, typically small and medium sized companies. And how did you how did you start Tmod? So walk me through. Were you you were not or were you a technical co-founder or founder rather? No, I was. Uh, I was a business guy. I had a technical background yeah. certainly, but I was you know I, it, it was it, it had been a decade since I'd written code. Uh, so I I had to actually find a technical co-founder, which was uh, pretty challenging. Uh, I obviously went to uh, my friends who I knew at Microsoft, but the Microsoft stock was doing incredibly well at that time. Um, and they didn't want uh, to leave. <laughs> they didn't want to. They didn't want to leave. They didn't want to lose their uh, health insurance. Uh, so finally, I was introduced to my co-founder Shaibal uh, Roy. Uh, he was working in the Bay Area and he was working on Netscape's uh, email software. So he was the perfect uh, CTO to uh, work with me. But even he was uh, reluctant to uh, uh, leave the company, and so. Um, we came came to an agreement where he would work part time, uh, and I would find an outsourcing company to go build the software, and he would manage it, and then he would move to Seattle and join the company full time once we had raised uh, our initial round of funding, and that's what happened. I raised about fifteen million in in nineteen ninety nine, and he joined my company, and and then we started recruiting company recruiting people locally. Uh, for the company, and some of the obviously some of the lessons that um, that you learned in that first in that first company you founded are things that you speak about in the book. But one of the things that are obviously uh, like a big issue for startups is the fact that nine out of ten of them fail, mostly because they don't find proper product market fit. So, yeah. how did you 
how did you find that proper product market fit? What was your what was your strategy for that? And also, just a follow up question, I want you to give some context. Did you did you raise that money pre revenue, or did you wait until you were actually you found product market fit? You were selling to the market before you raised that fifteen. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, no, th th this was during the crazy days of the dot com boom. And uh, based on my reputation, having worked for Microsoft, obviously was a big help. Um, I had, uh, you know, we had only developed beta software when I started running, uh, raising money. And uh, uh, I raised, uh, you know, $15 million in funding uh, on a pre-revenue basis. So we didn't have any revenue at that point. Um, and I raised it on a pre-money valuation of $23 million. So uh, it was totally wow. crazy times. Uh, at that, that time is, to be able to raise crazy. that kind of money uh, without really having any kind of revenue or customer traction. Uh, but to um, answer your first question about uh, product market fit, um, uh, what we discovered, uh, it took us about six months uh, to kind of iterate through various versions of our software. Um, we were able to sign up a lot of users, but uh, we didn't really get good retention. And I think that was because uh, people were still uncomfortable you know, uh, using uh, email in the cloud uh, and relying on some other company to store very sensitive corporate information, uh, which is your, you know, email uh, information. And so um, uh, it became clear to us that the original idea was not working. And so we decided to pivot our solution to providing mobile access to your existing email. Uh, this was the time when BlackBerry was getting started. They had about, you know, a couple of hundred thousand users um, and it was a small, you know, form, you know, like a pager form factor, uh, BlackBerry instead of the, you know, the smartphone uh, form factor. And uh, at that time, uh, you know, regular phones uh, were becoming internet enabled. Um, and you had something called a WAP browser on your phone, which, you know, on a very small screen allowed you to access the internet. And so we decided that you know, that, hey, why do you need a specialized device like BlackBerry, which can be expensive? Uh, why not enable access to your email on your phone? And that's what we did. We uh, we basically reverse engineered all the proprietary email systems like uh, Microsoft uh, Exchange and Lotus Notes and AOL Mail and Hotmail and so forth. And uh, we would allow you to access that email from your phone uh, wherever you are. Understood. Okay. And... So your your product so that's a that's a pretty crazy startup story. So you the fact that you raised fifteen million pre revenue, so you you were you were playing with investors' money while still trying to figure out product market fit, and you were iterating. Um, I'm just curious, would you have done it differently if you could redo it? Was that a lot of stress with the fifteen million pre revenue? <laughs> it it sure was a lot of stress. Uh, you have a lot of responsibility <laughs> to your uh, investors. Uh, yeah, I think I would have done it uh, differently. I would have done. A uh, lot more, you know, market research initially um, to validate whether the idea made, you know, sense at that time. You know, today, uh, you know, the idea of Timon is something that is widespread. Um, uh, so it was a matter of timing. So the idea was great, uh, but the timing was not right um, because it took, you know, quite some time for companies to become comfortable with using software on the cloud. Uh, and, you know, we were one of the first uh, SaaS uh, software, um, you know, introduced into the market at that point. And so 
uh, whenever you introduce a new concept, it takes, you know, it takes time uh, for companies to adopt it. So I wish I'd done a lot more market research uh, to really understand, hey, you know, is this something that is uh, ready, you know, in terms of market acceptance or not? And what, what advice would you have for somebody who, after you've learned and you've gone through this, to find that product market fit or to validate that idea before you take it to market? Yeah, I, I talk about that in my book, uh, From Startup to Exit. Uh, I have a whole chapter dedicated to, uh, you know, achieving product market fit. And so what I... I it's not an easy, it's not a quick, easy, <laughs> it's yeah, not a quick, yeah, easy thing. Yeah. yeah, what I recommend is obviously conduct a lot of customer interviews uh, and don't even talk about your solution uh, first uh, or ask the customer, uh, you know, if they like your solution. Uh, first, you know, first understand what are the top three or four problems that they have. Uh, in the domain that you are kind of researching. Um, and if your problem that you're addressing is not in the top three or four, then right there, you may want to pivot and understand, okay, let tell me more about your top three or two or three problems. And maybe there is a solution I can build uh, that is uh, more of interest to you. Because if your solution, if your solution is not addressing a, a top three or four problem, then even though they may be addressing a, you know, a, a need, it may not be top of mind to customer. And, and as a result, your sales cycles will be extremely long because the customer is going to say, I'm, I'm going to first address my critical problems and then I'll get to some other problems that you know, I need to address. And so first, you know, focus on you know, the top three or four problems. Uh, make sure that your solution tackles that. And the other thing that I recommend is actually testing, even before you built your software, is actually creating a, a website and using Google SEM or Facebook ads, drive users to that website and see if you can get customers to register for your solution. Uh, because that'll tell you, uh, you know, when you actually start marketing a solution, what kind of an uptake are you going to get? And are you going to get enough users? And it's going to, is it going to cost you how much is going to cost you to really acquire those users? And can you build a profitable business where your lifetime value of your customer is uh, you know, far greater than the cost of customer acquisition? So those are two things I'd highly recommend that uh, you know, people follow in terms of a method methodology for achieving product market fit. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Peloton. Peloton is pushing you further with so much new on the Peloton Bike and Peloton Bike Plus. New classes, new music, new ways to keep your workouts motivating and exciting. And if you're going to commit to a healthy lifestyle, you have to make it part of your lifestyle. It cannot just be a one-off. So any way to make sure that it's fun and fresh, that's how you stick with it. Now there's a few new additions for the new year that Peloton is bringing, boxing, new artist series music selections, and more daily workout variety. With their boxing, whether or not you've boxed before or you've never stepped into the ring, you can now discover a fast, fun, and furious boxing workout with Peloton instructors in your corner. They're adding new music. Work out to a single artist for an entire class or from your favorite hits to the deep cuts. There are over 100 artist series to choose from. Find your favorite music and turn your next workout into a concert. 
and more daily workout variety. So key, it's easier to stick to your goals when you keep your workouts interesting. Peloton has a workout for every goal, day, and mood. De-stress from a long day with 30 minutes of strength and 20 minutes of cardio, or do a quick 15-minute total body class before work. Stay motivated while having fun with bike workouts, yoga, meditation, dance cardio, and more. So whatever your goals are, if you're trying to see a better you, a healthier you in 2022, visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. That's OnePeloton.com, O-N-E-P-E-L-E-T-O-N.com. Uh, it's very smart. Um, and as as Timon grew, uh, walk me through um, the growth of the company and eventually your decision to uh to sell it, I guess is the best way to put it. So keep keep me keep walking me down your story. Yeah. So uh, once we decided to pivot to providing mobile uh, email software, um, then we started marketing to wireless carriers because they had to install our software uh, and make it available to their customers. And we got traction with T-Mobile, uh, which is uh, based out of here in Seattle. They were very interested in the solution that uh, we were providing. And then we also started talking to BlackBerry because uh, BlackBerry at that time was limited in its uh, in its uh, access to uh, to only Microsoft email uh, software, whereas we provided access to a whole range of proprietary email systems. And so as we started uh, discussions on licensing our software to them, uh, they came to the conclusion uh, that this was uh, very strategic for them, and they would be better off acquiring our our company. And so they, in 2002, they made an offer to uh, acquire uh, Timon, and we decided to, at that point, that uh, given that you know BlackBerry was uh, becoming uh, quite you know well known, and because they had existing relationships with wireless carriers around the world, that we could get much wider distribution for our software through BlackBerry as opposed to trying to do it uh, on our own. Uh, and this was also a time when you know the dot-com bust had happened, and so. Uh, you know, raising money was uh, very, very hard at that point. So uh, the sale to BlackBerry made a lot of sense for the company, and and we did extremely well. You know, uh, our technology became known as BlackBerry Internet Email, and uh, uh, it grew to about 50 million BlackBerry users uh, over time, um, and so had really widespread usage within the BlackBerry community. What are and when you were going through that process, so they were thinking about licensing it, and then the conversation started around whether or not we should uh, just acquire this software. What were some of the things that you were thinking? Because when you're when you build a company, there's there's different ways to exit, right? You yeah. can go for another funding round. You could technically IPO it, um, or you could just sell it to a company. So why did you? I think you sort of alluded to it because the dot com bust. It was it was harder to potentially take it in other directions. Is that the reason why you decided to sell to BlackBerry, or what other considerations should you uh, think about when you're trying to exit a company? Yeah, uh, that's that's a great question uh, because a lot of founders um, have to come to that uh, decision point. Uh, you know, at some point, whether they are actively selling their company or whether uh, somebody approaches them for an acquisition. Uh, in our case, as I said, uh, you know, uh, funding was very difficult to to raise. Uh, we did have actually an offer uh, from uh, our existing investors to continue to fund the money, uh, fund the company. Uh, but the terms were not very attractive uh, for us. 
um, because valuations had come down significantly at that point because of the dot-com bust. Uh, and the second consideration was the fact that BlackBerry uh, had uh, you know, relationships with all the major carriers around the world. And so you know, we would have been much more successful getting distribution for our software through BlackBerry than trying to do it on our own. And that ultimately worked out you know, for us um, because uh, as I said, uh, you know, our technology reached about 50 million BlackBerry users um, you know, within a few years uh, and was critical. Our- and it was also critical for BlackBerry because uh, they were able to not only reach uh, large enterprises, but also small businesses you know, uh, who could use BlackBerry because of our software. Were there things that a, a founder should think about when they're starting to get offers or, start, or they're starting to get approached or even during the life of the company that can help them get a better valuation when they're exiting? Is there things, the way they structure the revenue or the way they, uh, or certain customers they go after that they should think about? I, I would say the, the best, uh, the couple of things that founders need to consider. Um, uh, ideally, um, your company, there's a saying that your company should be bought, not sold. Um, so you want to be in a position where your company is getting uh, offers for acquisition as opposed to you going out there and sell, trying to sell your company. Um, and you should uh, typically uh, look to do an acquisition when the economy is doing really well uh, versus when the economy is doing poorly because at that time it's very hard to sell your company. So first of all, you know, the economic circumstances should be, you know, should be amenable to helping you sell the company and get the best price. And the second thing that I advise in my book is that uh, you should uh, think about hiring an investment bank uh, that specializes in your vertical, whatever market you're addressing, and they can line up uh, a number of um, acquirers and create competition between those acquirers and help you get the best price. Because if you have only one acquirer at the table, it's a lot more difficult to get a good price than it's uh, either you know something or nothing uh, versus a situation where you have two or three acquirers who are competing to acquire a company and you can get the best price for your company as a result. Did you did you work with an investment bank or is that just yes, a lesson that you've yes, learned? Yes, oh, yes, okay. we did. Yeah, we, we once okay. we got interest from BlackBerry, we hired an investment bank to uh, help us with the sale of the company. Yes, very smart. Yeah. Okay, so then, so then you uh, you sell the company to BlackBerry. Do you work for BlackBerry for a while, or yes, I, I they, did. Are you out I, the did. Door? Okay, I, you I uh, BlackBerry was a great company to work for. I worked there from two thousand two to two thousand six, approximately, um, and I um, uh, not only uh, did we uh, integrate at the Tmon technology with BlackBerry uh, to create something called BlackBerry Internet Email. Uh, which, as I said, reached you know 50 million BlackBerry users over time, uh, but also launched a number of uh, BlackBerry devices uh, through to it, through uh, T-Mobile. Um, uh, I, for example, launched the first uh, uh, BlackBerry device that was that had a phone form factor as opposed to a PDA you know form factor, and that was uh, Rim's entry into kind of the phone. Uh, the traditional phone business as opposed to just a you know smartphone uh, business. So it was a great time to be at BlackBerry. They were growing very fast. Uh, 
uh, and they were kind of the, the top device that everybody wanted uh, at that time. It was known as Crackberry, if you remember, uh, because people yeah, were so addicted I do. How was that? to that device. Yeah. yeah, it had quite a run. It had, it had quite a run. Um, it had quite a run, yes, yes. Uh, sad to sad that they had they got taken over by iPhone and Android, but uh, they had quite a run yeah. for about a decade. So you uh, eventually, eventually uh, finished up at BlackBerry and then you started another company because yes. you just, <laughs> you were, you couldn't sit around, you couldn't sit around. So you had to start live Mocha. So yes. walk me through, uh, walk me through the second, the second uh, entrepreneur story. the second startup story and how that yeah. came about. Yeah, it, uh, it came, it came about, uh, you know, uh, uh, based on two factors, uh, uh, one was, uh, you know, I was uh, traveling in in Spain with my family, and I'd, we had just landed uh, in in Marabella in in in, uh, in Spain, and we uh, rented a car from the from the from the airport, and uh, it was dark, uh, and we got lost, uh, and we ended up at a gas station, and I, um, you know, stepped out of the car to ask uh, people around me how to get to the hotel. And uh, unfortunately, everybody spoke only uh, Spanish at that time. Uh, things are different today, uh, but this was in you know, 2006, you know, 2007 timeframe. Uh, so I turned to my kids uh, who had been learning Spanish for a couple of years in, in middle school. And I said, okay, you know, ask them for directions in Spanish. <laughs> and uh, not, not surprisingly, they couldn't really speak any word of Spanish um, and became... <laughs> Uh, clear to me that uh, the way that you know kids learn Spanish in in high school and middle school is really not the way to learn, and the way to learn you know uh, foreign languages by practicing uh, with native speakers. Uh, so that was kind of one um, one thing that stuck in my mind. Uh, the second thing was um, at that time Rosetta Stone um, you know started becoming popular, and and they had these kiosks in airports, uh, this was in 2007, uh, they were selling their uh, boxed uh, CD-ROM based, uh, you know, uh, language learning software. And it's, it's struck, uh, struck me that uh, in the day and age, at that time, broadband internet was quite prevalent, that why do you need a you know, piece of CD-ROM software on your PC? Why not just stream it from the internet? And you could create an online learning uh, program uh, that could, you know, teach you a foreign language. And so we came up with this concept of social language learning where everyone was not just a student, but also a teacher. So I could be learning Spanish as a native English speaker, and I could, you know, help somebody in China learn English, whereas somebody in Mexico could be uh, learning English and teaching me how to, you know, speak Spanish. Uh, so that was the genesis of LiveMocha, and we were the first uh, of its kind um, on the internet. And we grew very rapidly to over 15 million users in over 200 countries around the world. And and what was what was different or what was the same when you started Live Mocha? Was this another uh, idea that you took to investors pre-revenue or did you bootstrap it at this point? Because I'm sure you had some, uh, some cash coming from the past exit. So mm -hmm. walk me through the, the inception. Yeah, uh, uh, in this case, uh, we had uh, launched uh, Live Mocha, uh, and we got uh, really good uh, press. And the investment community, um, th this was uh, 
pre the financial crisis, uh, the investment community was investing uh, in startups. And so we were lucky to uh, have raised uh, funding at that point. We raised about $6 million in funding from a, a local VC firm uh, here in Seattle um, and and uh, then started, you know, uh, rapidly growing the, uh, the, the, uh, our user base uh, from that point on. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Trade Coffee. Now, I'm a coffee lover, and I just found out a really uh, unnerving stat and fact about coffee. 90% of coffee that you buy from a grocery store is actually stale. You heard that right. It blew my mind. The coffee you know and love and you go buy from your grocery store needs an upgrade, and that's not the way coffee is actually supposed to taste. So instead of buying this old same coffee that you're already getting that's stale, Trade Coffee sends you fresh coffee as much as you want, as fast as you drink it, it's going to replenish, but it's always going to be fresh. So Trade sells fresh, roasted, and ethically sourced beans from America's best independent roasters. They ship free to you as often as you like, whole or ground. Whether you're a coffee nerd or you just want a better daily cup, Trade's real coffee experts taste test over 400 roasts and use technology to match you to your ideal coffee based on your preferences and your brewing method. They actually set up a quiz so that you can answer some information and they'll have a better idea of what coffee actually fits your particular profile. And they also guarantee that if uh, you don't love your first bag that they send you, they're gonna replace it for free. They've been featured by New York Times, Wired, GQ. They've delivered over 5 million bags of fresh coffee. I'm a huge coffee nerd, and any way I can get better coffee that I regularly enjoy, I'm game for. The subscription is no hassle. You can skip shipments. You can change your frequency. You can cancel anytime you want. And for all Success Story podcast listeners, they set up an intro offer to get you off the ground. They're offering a total of $20 off your first three bags when you go to Drink Trade dot com slash success story but you have to get started so to start take their quiz figure out what coffee works for you go to drinktrade.com slash success story start your journey to your perfect cup that's drinktrade.com slash success story get twenty dollars off your first three bags and one one thing you do speak about um is that fundraising doesn't just have to be an art there can be a science to it so mm -hmm. i actually wanted to touch on it during the live Mocha fundraise versus um, versus the Team On fundraise, because I feel like it's unfair if you're fundraising in a dot com boom, people are going to say, "Well, that was just easy." But you did it twice now, right? So you did yeah. the fundraising for a live Mocha as well, and also raised six million. Yeah. So when you do raise money, um, what are some strategies uh, that you can use to pitch VCs? Uh, and then I also want to understand a little bit more about the fundraising process and some lessons that you have, because I think that's something that I think a lot of first time entrepreneurs really have a hard time with. Yeah. So how do you turn this into a science from an art, from just pitching anybody and crossing your fingers? Yeah. Um, um, a, a, a critical um, a piece of that uh, fundraising strategy is to really tell a compelling story. Uh, about what kind of transformation is happening around the world that is uh, going to make your company successful. Uh, and in our case, uh, the key transformation that was happening at that time was globalization. Uh, everybody was talking about globalization. You know, they're talking about how 
um, you know, uh, jobs were being created in countries like China and India and Brazil. Um, and uh, as a result of that, um, there was an immense need for people around the world to learn English. Uh, so whether you were in China, India, or Brazil, any uh, you know country where jobs were being outsourced to, uh, it was critical for people in those countries. You know, if they wanted to get ahead, then learning English uh, was their ticket to success. Um, and so, you know, I kind of painted a picture of a billion plus people around the world wanting to learn English, and how the internet would enable us to reach uh, people all around the world uh, without having to sell these, you know, CD-ROM boxes and create distribution for software and all that. All that could be done very easily, you know, through the internet. Um, so that's one of the critical pieces that um, you have to kind of talk about. And then you have to show, you know, how your solution is really unique and is going to capture the imagination uh, of, uh, you know, the potential customers. Uh, and then finally, it comes down to the team. You know, uh, you know, I had uh, prior success in having sold uh, Team On to BlackBerry, and so that gave me some credibility that uh, I had achieved some level of success, and that I could potentially repeat that again with Limoca. Uh, and did you have to did you have to reach out to many investors, or did you only have to reach out to a select few? Is it a volume game at any point? No, it's not a volume game. Uh, typically, you reach out to between five or ten uh, investors, and either you are, you find traction or um, you don't. At which point, you need to kind of uh, if you really can't get your story across, you know, with it, with you know five to ten investors, then you need to kind of pull back and say, what's going, you know, what's going on? What's wrong with my pitch? And really, you know talk to existing investors, other entrepreneurs, and understand what's going on. Is it external factors? Is it your pitch that is not resonating? What's going on that's not? Because you know, you're just gonna be otherwise just uh, bang your head on the wall and getting bloody in the process and wasting a lot of time and energy when you could be focusing on building your company. Agreed, yeah, no, sometimes I feel like um... When I speak with founders who are fundraising, it seems like almost a, a full-time job mm -hmm. to do the fundraising, and they can't focus on their company because they're spending so much time looking for money. Yeah, that's um, why picking the right time also to um, uh, pitch a company is is very important. Um, so it it all again depends on the investment climate, but uh, generally, when you have some real traction to show uh, that's when you should go out and raise your uh, next round of funding. And the other point that you discuss and you speak about in the book, which I thought is an interesting point, and I'm in, I I agree with this point a lot, is that you have to be careful who you select as a VC partner. Yes. Walk me through why that is. Yeah, I mean, there are, um, you'll find that there are two categories of uh, <clears throat> VCs out there. Uh, there are those uh, who have, who have been prior entrepreneurs, have deep operational uh, work experience, and they know what it takes to build out, you know, a great startup. And those that are, you know, who have MBAs or financial uh, background, um, but don't really have expertise in, you know, how to uh, uh, build a company. Now, now, both sets of people are really smart. Um, generally, you'll find that there are a lot of smart people. Uh, but uh, I found better success with the VCs who have prior startup experience because 
they really understand you know what it takes to build a startup they are more patient they have better advice to offer you they have more connections so that you can you know, leverage those connections to build your company and build partnerships uh, and find people who can advise you uh, on your startup so i i typically uh, encourage founders to go find vcs who have deep uh, success and deep operational experience to uh, back them up and do you do you, when you when you structure those agreements with the with the venture partner is that part of the actual agreement where they may they may offer some strategy or they may make introductions or is this sort of like an unspoken handshake agreement just because you know the experience that they have no it's an un, unspoken handshake uh, agreement uh, typically okay. what happens is when you uh, get investment from a vc firm then one or two uh, partners from that firm will join your board and so by joining a board they are committing to spend a certain amount of time with your company and advising on advising on your strategy and uh, and and operational issues um so that's an unspoken agreement yes very good and uh, the last thing that uh, that I pulled out from this book that I thought was important was uh, the emphasis on company culture and mm -hmm. the importance that plays in growing a, a startup. And I think that everybody, I don't think anyone's going to disagree that having a strong company culture is important, but in a startup environment, why is it even potentially more so? Um, uh, yes, uh, it's actually not very common for uh, founders to take the time to create a company culture um, and oftentimes the company culture will simply reflect you know how the founders you know work uh, so when I was at Microsoft for example um, you know Bill Gates didn't define a culture and say these are our cultural values uh, uh, we basically uh, all emulated Bill and we were super like Bill we were all you know super hungry super aggressive uh, which you know served Microsoft well for a long time, but also got Microsoft into trouble with the Justice Department. So uh, I definitely advise founders to take the time to work with the management team to come up with a set of values uh, that they want to uh, you know uh, promulgate uh, to employees within the company and take every opportunity to really uh, discuss those values, whether it's you know new employee orientation or whether it's company meetings uh, where they highlight certain accomplishments and kind of uh, relate those accomplishments back to their values. Uh, those are the things that um, uh, are really important. Um, and the reason that the culture is important is because at some point the company is going to outgrow you and you will not have the opportunity to work with everyone. And so you want to make sure that the culture defines the guardrails and the process by which you know, your employees will make decisions and how they'll interact with each other, how they'll interact with customers, how they'll interact with partners. And if you want a certain type of behavior, then you need to define that culture and really uh, make sure that your employees understand your values. You know, Amazon is a great example. They have, you know, 14 different principles that they've articulated, um, which are, you know, in fact, their hiring process, they make sure that they're hiring people uh, based on those uh, principles. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, you may have heard me speak about leveling up in the past, how we can level up our careers, our businesses, our customer experience. I wanted to take a minute and focus on that last one because when we level up our customers' experiences, we transform our customers into evangelists and help our business 
and our careers grow like crazy. With new features dedicated to helping your sales teams improve your customer experience, HubSpot is on a mission to help millions of companies grow better starting with yours. Conversation intelligence tools help your teams get real-time insights into calls with automatic recording, transcription, and call analysis. With more visibility into customer conversations, coaching, and customer feedback becomes that much easier. Easy share meeting links let customers see availability and book meetings for you all from the HubSpot platform. This cuts out endless cycles of scheduling email. Learn more about how you can transform your customer experience with a HubSpot CRM platform at HubSpot.com. Very smart. I think I think that's actually a good point. I, I mentioned that culture is important, but you're right. I think that's something when you're a startup founder, you may not see the value in it day one just because you're so distracted with all the other stressors that are going on in your life. But think long-term think longevity like you have to get that you have to get that right from day one or that can that can damage you in 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 the long term for sure yeah i mean uh, take the example of uh uber you know um uber uh was super successful because they were uh very very aggressive you know uh travis kalanick who's the uh, founder and ceo for a long time um was very very aggressive and in um, you know, in fighting the uh, the the taxi uh, industry, uh, but unfortunately, the aggressive culture uh, really uh, created a lot of problems for them, and ultimately, he was fired from his from his position. Um, and so, you know, you really have to be very careful about how you define your culture and how that changes. You know, over time, maybe you need to be aggressive initially, but then as you grow your company you know, the tone of the company, you know, might, might need to change as well. Um, and one thing that I just wanted to to ask you, because you put this book together, and even as I was, I was reading through the, it goes through literally every part of building a company, which is like incredibly impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, who is, you know, well, here, we'll show it here if somebody's watching, or, you know, it'll be in the show notes as well. But who is this book for? What is the most important thing that you want somebody to take away after they read this book? Yeah. Um, so the book um, is uh, is uh, meant for anyone uh, who has uh, an interest uh, in either becoming an entrepreneur or understanding how the startup industry works. Um, so it's designed to be, uh, especially for founders uh, or aspiring founders, uh, is designed to be a guidebook um, that you can one read. Uh, from start to finish and understand the whole journey, uh, but also can be a guidebook uh, reference. Um, so, you know, I have a couple of chapters on fundraising and, and how term sheets are negotiated. What does each term mean, et cetera? Um, well, you might forget after you read the book, uh, that specific portion, but, you know, when you get ready to um, uh, negotiate your term sheet with your VC partner, you may want to go back to the book and read, okay, what does you know participating preferred mean or what does anti-dilution clause mean? Uh, all those you know terms are covered extensively in the book. Very good. Um, and then I actually forgot to mention, so I'll leave it in the show notes, but the book is called From Startup to Exit. And then this actually brings me to my next point. If people do want to get the book or they want to connect with you, yeah. best website, Social media, where do you want people to go? You can drop as many handles or, or websites as you'd like. Yeah, so the the main website uh, I have uh, is uh, shirishnetkarni.com. So that's spelled S-H-I-R-I-S-H-N-E-T-K-A-R-N-I. 
R-I-S-H-N-A-D-K-A-R-N-I.com. And you'll find me very active on LinkedIn as Shurish N, S-H-I-R-I-S-H-N, as well as the same handle on Twitter um, as well. So I'm very active on those particular channels. Very good. Okay. So um, to finish off these interviews, I'd just like to do a couple rapid fire questions to pull out some insights from your career. Um, so as long or as short as you'd like, whatever um, is fine with me. So the biggest challenge that you had in your career, what was it and how did you overcome it? Uh, the biggest challenge was with my first company with uh, Team On Systems, as we discussed, uh, you know, my, my initial foray with the product was not successful. And then we had to pivot. Uh, and so we were successful in pivoting our company and, and finding a good uh, solution, which ultimately led to the acquisition by BlackBerry. And I think that's actually a really important point. Like I think we've, we've kind of glossed over the fact that you've mentioned the, the word pivot a few times. Um, how important is being able to pivot as an entrepreneur? Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's always has to be at the back of your mind uh, as you're doing, you know, testing for product market fit. Uh, you know, you need to continually understand your customer pain points. Uh, how are they using your software? Are they um, engaged with your software? Are you retaining your customers? All of these things you have to really understand and uh, have ideas in your back of your mind as to you know how to take the the, the product forward whether it's uh, you know whether it's fine tuning it or whether it's a you know complete pivot uh, those are things that you need to be thinking about all the time you've probably had a lot of people that have impacted you over the course of your career if you had to pick one person who had an incredible impact who was that person and what did they teach you uh, I would say my my mother uh, was uh, very impactful uh, to me. Uh, she always uh, uh, believed uh, in me and uh, encouraged me to do things beyond what I thought my capacity was. So she she really pushed me hard and uh, gave me the freedom to you know and also encouragement more so to pursue things that I thought were a stretch. Uh, for me, and that's how I kind of grew over over time. And uh, when I wanted to come to the United States, uh, she did not raise any objections. She encouraged me to do that, even though it meant that you know we would be separated and not be able to see each other for long periods of time. Um, if you could recommend a book or a podcast that you've read or consumed lately, what would it be? Uh, for for the book. Uh, I would one of my favorite uh, books um, is uh, called Positioning uh, by I think the author is Al Rees, um, and uh, it's an incredibly uh, uh, smart book about how to think about positioning your product uh, in a variety of different ways. And my f uh, f uh, favorite podcast is How I Built This by Guy Raz. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get there. I'm trying, one day, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to get. One day, one day you will be uh, on that list. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So, if if you had to tell your 20 year old self one thing, what would it be? Um, I would say uh, start sooner. I started my first company when I was, uh, you know, 40 years old, which is not, you know, too old, uh, but I tell uh, young people these days that. Um, as they're especially graduating from college is that, hey, you have, you know, you, you have all the freedom in the world, a little amount of risk, 
you know, uh, stay in your parents' you know basement if you need to uh, to save money. But you know, go start something or go join a startup uh, because this is the time to do it, and you'll have all the energy and excitement in the world to do it. Uh, what is a, a big misconception about startups or entrepreneurship? Um, I would say a big misconception is that, you know, you need to work 80, 90 hours a week. Um, uh, certainly there are some number of people who do that, but I think you can do a startup um, and still, you know, I had, you know, young kids growing up uh, when I was doing my uh, startups and I still managed to find time to spend with them, help them with their homework and so forth. I worked long hours but you don't necessarily need to sacrifice everything to achieve you know success it is i i i mentioned that to people that it's a marathon um where you need to run you know fast uh but you need to pace yourself you can't burn yourself out in the first uh, first innings <laughs> uh because you need yeah. to go, you continue going for a long period of time very smart and last question what does success mean to you um success to me, the, the thing that I get the most gratification from is uh, getting the message out about whatever you're doing to a large community of people and, and, and delighting them with what you have done. Uh, so whether it's a you know, product uh, with Timon or Limoca, um, where we reached you know, 50 million BlackBerry users or 15 million Limoca users, or my book, um, I want to get the word out and and help people, you know, and delight them uh, and help them in their journey as, as much as possible. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. 
We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards and it's the same old story, tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com excellence. That's linkedin.com excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information, but Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E.com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 